0: As we are in Matthew chapter 6, you're turning there, and let me remind you of an incident in history. Some of you remember this group. Some of you lived during that time. Some of you, it seems like ancient history that there was John, George, Paul, and Ringo. One of the fellows, George Harrison, was uh, one of the early uh, group, uh, part of the group of the Beatles, and his sister was very, very, very involved with their, upra- their coming up as they were in Liverpool, and they were doing some of those different stints in just local. Local clubs and pubs, and she went out and she got a lot of their records to record, and then she was going out to the different radio stations and trying to get them played and trying to make them a popular um, group at that time. And so she put a lot of effort into it. And so the time went by that they became a success, and they hired a different manager, somebody who would be full time, and she was there for no longer their manager, but she kept in touch, doing a lot of things and trying to work with them. But then there was a falling. Between her and her brother, the falling out came that when she bought an inn and she used the title for one of his from one of the songs as the uh, as the name for her inn and kind of riding on his coattails, he got upset and the two of them had a rift that developed that they ended up getting so ticked off at each other they didn't talk for decades and decades, and decades. Didn't see each other, didn't talk, even though they owed a lot to each other. It wasn't until right around 2000, when he was diagnosed with cancer, that they reconciled. In fact, when it was that he died in 2001, she was the only sibling that was there, holding his hand. His wife and children were there, but that was it. And they were divided for all those years over something so simple as she borrowed the title of his song for her in, and it blew up into this ridiculous argument that kept him apart for years. Now, they're not the only ones that that happens to. We hear that sad story of family members and friends getting upset and causing divisions and not talking to each other for weeks and months and years over petty things. But what's really sad is when people who are Related to God in the sense that he is their father creator. That he is the one who has designed them when they have a division with him. A division that sometimes it's over small things, but they escalate into big things. The division that is because of sin in our lives. And for decades, some are not close to the Lord. Oh, they come to church. They may even have a Bible. They may even know catechism and creed, but they're not close to the Father. They're divided from him. There's a chasm between him and them in fellowship because of sin in their life. Jesus wanted to remove that. So Jesus, in one of his sermons that's recorded in depth, he is dealing with people getting rid of of that gulf between them and God so they can come close. He talks about that in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, where in the beginning of the sermon he talks about you need to have a craving for righteousness, how you need to have a sorrow and a grief over sin. He talks about how to become close to the Lord. And in the course of that, he talks about one of those areas that we can really focus on, and that's prayer. I read in Matthew chapter 6, talking to peoples that he wants them to get close to the Lord, he says, And when you pray, verse 5, you shall not pray as the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. They have their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into your closet, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father in secret, so that your Father, which sees in secret, shall reward thee openly. And when you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. See, he's talking about a division that even comes to people, between God and people, even in prayer. Be not, therefore, like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. After this manner, pray. Pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now what's obvious in this in this small passage is Jesus wants people to pray he wants them to get close to his father but what's obvious is not only that he wants you to pray and be close to the father he wants you to pray effectively He wants you to pray in a manner that it is real communication. It is real fellowship. It is real intimacy that takes place. And so he gives some practical suggestions that you can follow, such as if you're going to pray and have impact and get that gulf closed, what you need to do is have a retreat with God. A time and a place on a daily basis that you are going to discipline yourself to make sure you do it and that it is a spot where you can focus on the Lord. I was reading one author who was talking about how he in his home had set up in his den, living room area, a small little circular table. And there on the table, he met with the Lord, he said, on a regular basis as long as they lived in that house. Every morning, he'd get up about a half hour earlier than anybody else and have his time with the Lord. And on that table, he went and got himself a crown of thorns, a replica of the one that Christ wore, and put it on the table to remind him visually that Jesus had made this possible through his sacrifice. He said he also got a small replica of a shepherd's staff so that as he prayed often, he'd put his hand on that staff to remind himself that Jesus is the kind shepherd, the good shepherd that wants to guide me, wants to lead me. And he said, there were some of the most sweetest times in his life, reading his Bible and having that prayer time in that set corner of that room, that he said he missed that spot. Even when they went to a different house, that and then the family grew, that he had to find a different spot. But he said, that one of all was where he really developed and really learned to have his prayer time. Now, you've seen the film some of you, the war room, advocating that same idea. Have a spot where you can get alone with the Lord. Jesus goes on and says, not only do you need to have a retreat, you need to have a relationship with God. That is, you need to understand that you, though you are a creature of God, you can say, I'm in the family of God in the sense that you are one of his creation. You need to be in his spiritual family by adoption by being born again into his family so that you have a relationship with him that it's not just God but it is our father our Abba, our close, intimate Godfather, and it only happens by being birthed into his family. You are not part of his family because you have been born into this world. You need to be born again spiritually to be a part of his family because as many as believed on him, to them gave he power to become the son of God. And you need that experience. You need to have a moment in your life where you call upon Christ to be your savior, to give you eternal life, where you are birthed spiritually spiritually so that you have an intimate relationship that you can develop with God the Father. We go on. Jesus said you need to have a reverence for God. He starts off in the very beginning of the prayer, taking time to praise God. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He praises him not only by by worship, but also by giving the reverence of saying, I want your will. That he goes on and talks about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This whole idea of worship of God should be a part of your prayer. Then there's reliance. Where Jesus, as he goes on, says, here's where the requests come from. When you come, you ask in verses 11 and 12 and 13, specific requests. Give us our this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation. Now, that is a general summary of a lot of little details because your daily bread can be a whole lot of different items. It can be your food, your clothing, your shelter. It can be your appliances, your vehicle. It can be your job. It can be your wardrobe. And he, so he talks about those different areas areas. And we want to spend a little bit of time talking about it. And there's certain facts that stand out. Several years ago, I shared with you that when one of our daughters was headed out to college, that she was going to go out to Minnesota by herself. Fact was, she's not going to drive that distance by herself. That was an obvious fact. You're not driving 21 hours, a young lady on the turnpike all by herself in a car that I don't know if it's going to make it. So we had somebody else ride with her and the idea was that we went online and we said you're not going to drive 21 hours straight. We're going to find you a hotel. We went online, found this hotel on the border of Illinois and Indiana that they could stop at the night. And so their plans were all made. You'd go that distance, stop and drive the rest of the way to Minnesota the next morning. And so they get there at night. The pictures were great, but when they pulled up, as I shared with you before, they pulled up and the thing was under construction. The pool that was outdoor, outdoors, the fence was broken down, and the plate glass had, had some of the plywood covering it up. And so it wasn't very appealing, but it had a sign that said it was open. So they walked in and they said it was even less appealing inside the lobby. The lights were not working in the lobby. They were flickering and they were flashing. That anybody who came in with any kind of medical problems, they could easily all of a sudden go into a seizure. They were flashing so bad. They said at the counter sat a young man that was less appealing for this hotel. The fellow didn't look like he was a hotel keeper. He looked like he was a gangster from the ghettos of Chicago. And so they talked with him. He says, yeah, I got your reservations. Let me check it out here. And he got it all taken care of. They get in the elevator. It was less appealing. The elevator rattled. It shook. It got up to the floor. And, you know, after it slipped a couple times, it gets out. They walk into the hallway and they said, here it was, this hallway. Their room was halfway down. And in the hallway, there's one light. And it's not in the ceiling. It's hanging by one wire. And they said it was scary. We get to the door. We can't get the door open. We have to put our shoulders in it to get the door open. Worse yet, we can't get it shut. Do you secure it? They checked out the room. There was a dirty sock, dirty underwear inside the room. So then they all of a sudden they heard noise down the hallway, and then they heard a baby crying. They were scared, but they couldn't hear. Uh, they couldn't see anything. They opened the door, which wasn't secured anyway, and there was nobody there, and all the rooms looked dark. Fact stood out. They were in the Bates Motel. They were not in a normal motel. That was fact. Fact number two, that was real obvious. They're not staying there. They're not staying there. They got, they're getting out of there. They called us and said, you're not staying in I don't care what the internet said about this place. You know, if it's true, if it's in the internet, it must be true. So they went down, they told the guy, we're not staying here, we're leaving, cancel our reservation. And his comment was, we get a lot of that. I guess so. Simple facts that were very obvious right from the start okay, that came glaring out. You, When you go through the Lord's Prayer and you read verses like verse 11, there are some facts that stand out. We looked at some last week. I want to focus in on verse 12. Forgive us our debts. When you start highlighting just that one phrase and look at it, folk, there are some facts that are very, very obvious that come bursting off this page, that jump and show you that there is some important truth in that little phrase that is absolutely amazing. Let's take a look at those facts. Fact number one is this. Jesus is concerned about your spiritual life. When he says, pray this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, fact one, he's concerned about your spiritual life. Now, I understand that Jesus is concerned about your physical needs. I know that. I see that in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. I see when you jump down in the passage, verses 25, 26, 27, 28, all the way through, that Jesus talks about the idea that he's going to clothe you. I have no doubt that Jesus is concerned about your and my physical needs. But when he's giving the list, of just a summary of the different items that we need to rely upon the father for in verses 11 12 and 13 two out of three of those are dealing with your spiritual life the one is dealing with forgive us our debts the other one is lead us not into temptation so jesus puts a greater stress on your spiritual needs than your physical needs according to this passage now that's no surprise to any one of us in this room That Jesus is concerned about you and about your needs. We understand that a parent, a good parent, will be very concerned about all areas of the child's life, including their spirit. We understand that a good spouse will be very concerned about their spouse's, their mate's needs. That the husband will do what Jesus said that he would do. That he would try to provide the spiritual needs of the wife, not just the physical needs. We understand that wise owners like Jesus, that they will take care of their possession, their property, for we are bought with the price that we belong to him we understand good leaders they will be concerned about the needs of their followers. We understand good friends like Jesus will take care of the needs of their friends. All their needs, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional. We understand that family members, the normal family, the functional family, that they are concerned one for another like our brother Jesus is concerned about us as a ruler. He's concerned about us, his subjects. He's concerned about our physical, but he is even more concerned according to verses 12 and 13 about our spiritual needs. And so that That's fact number one. Jesus is concerned about your spiritual needs and you ought to be as well. You ought to be concerned about your spiritual relationship with God Almighty this morning as much if not more than Jesus Christ is. There's another fact. Fact number two. Fact number two is Jesus wants you to live a pure and holy life. How do I know that? He says, forgive us our debts. He wants them out. He wants the sin out of your life. He's even going to go further and say, lead us not into temptation. He wants you to live a pure and holy life. This is highlighted throughout scripture. Be ye therefore perfect, as my father is imperfect. Be, he says, be holy, walk in the light, don't walk in darkness. Jesus wants you to live a pure life, a life where your words are pure a life where your actions are kind and just a life where your sexuality is pure a life where your activities and your ethics when it comes to finances are pure and holy that's what he wants from you and it doesn't make any difference what age you are doesn't make any difference what gender you are doesn't make any difference what our position in society Jesus wants from us a pure and holy lifestyle where we are morally upright and living in righteousness fact number three Fact number three is this. The problem we have is our sin. The problem is, it's there. Forgive us our sins or our debts. It is a problem that we all have, but the point is, some of us don't even recognize it. Some people don't even know how they look to God. In fact, there are some people, they don't even know how they look, period, okay? (laughs) When I was in Georgia just a couple weeks ago, I got up one morning and I was walking from the bedroom to the bathroom and as I walked through the living room area, the three Tuttle girls were there. And they started giggling and laughing and they were too polite to say anything when I said, what's the matter, girls? Okay, What's so funny? Well, the funny was me. The funny was I was having a really bad hair day. And I didn't even realize the bad hair day. Now, I understand some of you sit here in the pews and you're probably doing it right now. You're going to say, put it down, put it down. But doesn't this happen to sometimes we don't even recognize how we look? Well, God says, here's how you look. And Jesus is talking to the people in this time, and he's going to say, here's the way you look to me. You are sinners. You have a problem. You are tainted by sin. And it needs to be removed from your life. It can't stay there because it is a real big problem between you and God, between you and the Lord. In fact, he says, here's the problem. Your sin makes you indebted to God. He uses a word here. Now in the Aramaic, it's troba. And it's the I, it's not in the, in the Greek word here, but it's a very common word that shows up in Jewish writings that they looked and they said that when we sin, we create a debt to God, a debt that we cannot pay. Now, why would he use indebtedness? as an illustration of sin. Probably because there's a lot of similarities between indebtedness and sin. If you start thinking about it, that in the same way, when we sin against God, it's like putting ourselves in great debt financially. Both of them, they rob peace and joy. Indebtedness can create great pressures. It's got to be dealt with. It just can't be ignored. The indebtedness adversely affects relationships. When people are in debt, couples get upset with each other. When people are in debt, families get mad at each other that it's not being paid, it's not being dealt with. And that indebtedness can quickly overwhelm. It can imprison a person. It can take over their life, the financial indebtedness. The same is true about sin in our life, besetting sins in our life. They can all of a sudden quickly overwhelm. They can all of a sudden imprison us. And Jesus said, I don't want that in your life, and you've got a problem. It's a sin problem, and it's in every one of our lives. Man, it can get so quickly out of control. Let me give you an illustration of of out-of-control debt. An out-of-control debt that we hear a lot of these days. It has to do with the United States. We all know that as of this past weekend, here's our national debt. It is $19.5 trillion. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to you and me until we get to put it in pictures. Try to get in a sense of what's $19 trillion in debt. If we took a $100 bill and we just kind of put it there, okay, we know what it looks like. Now, if I want to expand and make a pile of these hundreds, let's put together here a pack of 100 of them. It's a pack that we can put in our pocket. We've now got $10,000 sitting in our pocket. It's not that cumbersome. We can handle that. It's not that big, that bad. But all of a sudden, let's expand it a little bit more. Let's make a million of these. Now we've got a stack of bills that we'd probably have to carry around in a knapsack or a backpack. It's a little bit more. That's a million. It's not a trillion. Let's expand it a little bit more. Let's do $100 million. That's going to fit on the the size of a pallet. It'll be about the size of this pulpit area. That's $100 million, but that is still not a trillion. So let's expand this a little bit more. Let's go up to a billion dollars. What does a billion dollars look like, a stack of them? Well, now all of a sudden we've got several pallets. That's a billion dollars, but that's still not a trillion. When we get an idea of the United States' indebtedness, here's what we get when we start talking about a trillion dollars. This is one trillion, what it looks like, that little guy down in the corner. The United States is 19 and a half of those in debt. That's why it's, it needs to be a discussion, by the way, in this, in this election, is we got to stop this indebtedness because we are robbing from future generations. It is a crime. It is terrible. And I quote the president, it is criminal and un-American to go into such debt when he ran in 2008. But that indebtedness is almost overwhelming, almost impossible. It is not it is not as bad as the sin debt that we have to God. The sin debt is even greater because of this fact that we are compounding it on a regular basis, that we sin joy- uh, knowingly at times. And this indebtedness is not something that we can get rid of in and of ourselves. It's an indebtedness that is robbing joy and peace. It's an indebtedness that God talks about elsewhere that says it brings about death. The Scriptures talks about sin being a problem that is so grave that it says, by one man sin entered into the world and death upon all men. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the, yeah, that is the standard of God. We read in Scriptures the wages of sin is death. We understand. There are three types of death talked about in the Scriptures. There is physical death. We understand what that is. We've gone to funerals. We understand when the spirit and the body separate. We also understand there is spiritual death. When the person is separated from God spiritually. We talked about that picture at the beginning. That gulf between God and man. Then there is eternal death. That is that spiritual death that goes into eternity. That there is no reconciliation. That it is forever. And the place that the person is put because of their sin is in hell where they are separated from God forever and ever. That's eternal death. And so when we talk about sin, we're talking about a pretty serious problem. We're not talking about somebody's tough standing up. We're talking about separation from God. A separation that every single one of us in this room, we've got this issue with. He says that it is something that has caused you to be in debt to God. It is something that brings about death in your life. Now that spiritual deadness, let's remind ourselves, you who are dead in sin, that was you and me. Before we were born again, we are dead in sin. And I remind you, That we don't hang on to dead critters. We don't hang on to dead bodies. They become putrid. They're like Lazarus in the grave after four days. And Jesus said, roll away the stone. And the sister says, Lord, you don't want to do that. He stinks. There's decomposition. There is putridness. Do you understand that when he talks about us being spiritually dead, we are putrid in the nostrils of God? We stink. We are talked about in Isaiah where it says that all of our righteousnesses, That we try to do on our own. They are as, do you remember the phrase that he uses? As filthy rags. They are like used diapers in the nostril of God. That's you and me. Standing before God Almighty. In fact, he talks about how this sin problem that we have, it seeks to increase in our life. It is something that grows and it expands. When they knew God, they glorified him not. This is a description of the human race. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do them, but have pleasure in them. Is that a description of our society today? Wouldn't you think? That our society knows... That God is opposed to the destruction of the innocents. Our God is opposed to rampant immorality. Our God is opposed to crime and criminal activity. Our God is opposed to greed. And yet there is a society that is filled with the pleasure of these activities. This is a terrible situation. A situation that affects all of us. And it gets worse because when we choose to sin, the Bible says that we align ourselves with Satan. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. When you choose to lie, when you chose to disobey your parents, when you chose to enact upon your loss, when you chose to gossip about somebody else, you are lining yourself up with Satan. In fact, let's make it a little bit more simplistic. God says, you became my enemy. You rebelled against me. He describes it. He says that this is the way we were when we were following our sin nature. We were enemies. We were enemies by our wicked works. We were opposing God. We were, we were resisting and rebelling against him. As a result of lining up with Satan, as a result of, of that putridness, he says, I have wrath upon that sin. I have an anger, a justified anger that comes out. You who are dead were by nature children of the wrath. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. He that believes not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides upon him. We can sit in church and we can be flippant about it and say we look good. We're okay. We grew up in a Christian home and we have Bibles in our laps. We know different things and different stuff. But the fact of the matter is sin separates us from God. And just because we're Americans, just because we call ourselves Christians, doesn't mean that we're free on the free and easy road. We are victims of, of our own desires to follow sin. And as a result, the wrath of God abides upon us until there's forgiveness. Until there is repentance. And there is therefore misery in this life and in the next. Because he talks about there is no peace, says the Lord. And Jesus says, there's a problem here. The simple fact is there is a problem. Now I understand that in many churches it's going to be played down. I understand that what I am saying is not politically correct. I understand that some will be upset and offended that I'm tried, that I'm so blunt and so pointed and that I shouldn't speak this way like a hellfire and dinam- damnation sermon. But I want to share with you how scriptures describes the word sin when you read it in the English. There are several words used in the New Testament. These are the ones. It is not the idea of an illness. It is not the idea of just a mistake. It is the idea of rebellion against God, foolish behavior. It is the idea of you are in debt to God and you are in trouble because of your sin and my sin. That's a fact. That is clear from this passage. Sin has serious consequences. And Jesus says we got to deal with those you got to deal with them. So I'm going to have you pray this. Forgive us our debts. That's fact number three. Fact number four. Let's move on. Fact number four is this. Even believers struggle with sin. Our Father, which art in heaven. There's a believer relationship. Forgive us our sins, our debts. It is very clear in this text that as he's teaching believers disciples to pray, he is saying, you still deal with sin. Let me see if I can explain it this way. When you and I become a believer in Jesus Christ, that is, we come to a point in our life where we realize that I cannot get to heaven by my church membership, by my baptism, by my good looks, good works, by my good deeds, but I need a Savior and that one Savior, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one by which no man can come unto the Father, but by him is Jesus Christ. And I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins and to take me into heaven when I die. When I become a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, what happens is he takes care of that wrath of God. He gets that removed on my behalf. Being now justified, a legal term, by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Jesus Christ. When we were enemies... We are now reconciled. No longer does God declare us enemies. The truce is signed and presented to us through Jesus Christ. We read in scriptures, once we have come in faith to Jesus Christ and believe in him and him alone to get us to heaven, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Thank God. The wrath is removed. Thank God there is a freedom from the penalty of sin. Thank God that he that has the Son has everlasting life. Thank God Almighty that he provides a pardon for our sin and for our indebtedness. A pardon that he has made available to each and every one of us in this room. D.L. Moody wrote about an incident years ago that happened while he was preaching in Chicago area and doing his ministries. He talked about one of the state pens that was, that was in function there in Illinois at this time. And he told about a story about a man by the name of Reuben Johnson who had been in this penitentiary for 19 years. One day, the, the, the commissioner, state commissioner of the prisons, went to the governor, and he said, Mr. Governor, would you give me five different pardons? That I can distribute to five different prisoners after six months. I'm going to evaluate who is the, most mo- the best model prisoners. And we're going to give five of them. Just sign the pardon. Don't put a name. I'll put a name in after six months. The six months went by. The state commissioner comes to this prison. He's chosen this prison to give out the five different pardons. He has all the prisoners standing before him. And he reads off one name. Oh, the man was so excited, jumping up and down. Came running forward, got his pardon, was released from prison. Reads off another name. That man comes running from the back of the line. So enthusiastic, he's pardoned, he's released. He reads off the name Reuben Johnson. Nobody moves. People are looking around, but nobody's moving forward. He reads it out loud again. Turns to the warden. The warden says, yeah, he's here. He reads it another time, and there he is, standing in the front row. Reuben Johnson. He's looking around behind him. The warden steps up and says, Reuben, that's you. Can't be me. I don't deserve it. He's reading your name. There's got to be another Reuben Johnson here. No, it's you, buddy. It's you. Johnson couldn't believe that he was given a pardon after all these years. For what he had done, he could not believe it. He fell to his knees, bursting in tears, in gratitude and appreciation, and believed it had to be somebody else. He was astounded that he was pardoned. Folk, you've been pardoned from your sin. It is astounding and amazing. It is amazing that God would forgive me of my childhood and my adulthood sins. It's amazing that God would forgive my sins with my mouth, my mind, my deeds. It amazes me that God forgives me of my anger, of my terrible conduct at times as a dad and as a spouse. It is amazing that he gave a pardon. A pardon You know what's more amazing? That God just doesn't have five pardons. He has one for every single person who will take it. That's amazing. That's amazing grace that would forgive us and give us that pardon. Now that is called judicial forgiveness. It is a legal act, a spiritually legal act, where God judicially says, you who are guilty of a crime and of an indebtedness, you're guilty, but I am going to free you of all the consequences. I am going to declare that as of this moment, when you put faith in my son Jesus Christ, That I will look at you and you will be as if you had never sinned. He has taken all the penalty. He has taken all the sin upon him. And I am giving you a born again fresh start in life. That is judicial forgiveness. That is available to any and all. And the majority of us in this room have at some time asked Christ for that forgiveness of all of our sins. Now, once we have done that, we still have a problem. We still have a sin nature. It still follows us through. Godly people struggled. People who were called the apple of God's eye, they, uh, they still battled with sin like King David. Like Isaiah, who sees Jesus in his heavenly holies sitting on the throne high and lifted up. In Isaiah 6, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. He recognized he still struggled with his speech. He, we read about the apostle Peter. He says to the Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. We read of the apostle Paul. says, I have a problem with my body. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? He talks about in Romans chapter 7. We read in the New Testament how Jesus warned the disciples the last night he was with them that they would still have this problem. Remember, he is starting to wash feet. Peter says, Lord, Lord, you can't wash my feet. You're the master. We should be doing this for you instead. And Jesus says to him, Peter, if you do not let me wash your feet, you have no fellowship with me, no part with me. And Peter, being the impulsive man that he was, says, well, if washing my feet means you're going to be, you and me can be tighter and closer, then wash my whole body. Give me a bath, because I really want to be close to you. And, God, and Jesus, God, responds this way. He says to Peter, he said, the one who is bathed all over doesn't need to bathe all over again. You see, he's talking about the custom of that day. You would have that early morning bath, and then once you bathe, you would start walking around in the streets. You'd come back after you walked around. You didn't need another bath, but you need to rinse off the feet. Because that's where the dust was now, from walking around. He says, he that has been bathed completely, he doesn't need to bathe again, except for he needs to rinse off his feet. Jesus goes on to explain this. He says, you are clean, but not all of you. You you have been washed, and he's going to talk about spiritually now. You have been bathed, but not all of you are bathed spiritually. And we read that he says, he's in referring to Judas. How Judas has not been cleansed of his sin by faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is using a physical picture to picture the spiritual issues that we have. That you and I, though we are followers of Jesus Christ, we still need to every day rinse off the sin in our life or we're not going to have real close fellowship with him. We have a problem. That problem is we're not perfect. That problem is we are not sinless. And as a result, when we have sin in our life we are still God's child but we separate that fellowship that intimacy with us let's do this let's do number 5 that a fifth obvious fact that just stands out from the phrase forgive us our sins our sins as a believer our sins